millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Censored, the podcast committed to reading out literary smut. My name is Aoife Vrithnach, a historian reading books because the archives are still closed. The withdrawal symptoms, lads, they're shocking. You can find me on Twitter and Patreon at CensoredPod if you want to say hi or even subscribe. I'd love it if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That would be amazing. This is a bonus episode to round off Season 4. And what a book I chose the 800-page modernist masterpiece that changed literature forever, James Joyce's Ulysses. This is spectacularly filthy, and it pissed off censors and politicians in the 20s and 30s. Ulysses was caught up in censorship drama in America and Britain, but the Irish censors were uncharacteristically quiet about it. Fun fact, it was never actually banned in Ireland. To explore this mystery, I'm joined by Dr. Lloyd Maeve Houston from the University of Oxford. Their research explores filth in all its forms, examining the ways in which the key events in Irish cultural history intersected with wider debates over venereal disease, birth control and eugenics. Welcome back to the podcast, Lloyd. Thank you for joining me. It's it's my very great pleasure to be back. It, it feels like, in some ways, this is the sort of prequel episode to the the Beckett one. It's like... This is true. We are doing it backwards, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about what drink would go with the book. I know Bloomsday is, in fact, just a pub crawl. <laughs> but apart from porter, is that really the drink? Is it porter? Or should we be having tea or a chaser or what? Well, so, I mean, unsurprisingly, there is a, a powerful quantity of drink that sloshes around in uh, in Ulysses. I mean, um, at one point, Bloom uh, thinks to himself that, uh, you know, be a good puzzle. Like, how do you get across Dublin without uh, without passing a pub? I think a, a, a few decades later, um, Joyce's son said, well, you know, the answer to that is that 
you go into every pub, you know, you never pass a pub um, was the solution to that, that, that little riddle. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, as you say, there's a hell of a lot of pointer um, that, that knocks about in the novel. So, um, you know, as early as the sort of first episode, we have Buck Mulligan telling um, the Englishman Haynes that if he wants to plagiarize any more of Stephen Dedalus's theories about literature in Ireland, um, he's going to have to buy him a drink. The, the sacred pint alone can unbind the tongue of Daedalus, he said. Um, and Bloom has barrels of uh, a porter bumping in his head. Um, but probably uh, the kind of most iconic drink in Ulysses um, is the glass of Burgundy that Bloom has with his Gorgonzola sandwich and Davy Burns in uh, in Les Dragonians. Um, not least, well, um, on the one hand, it, it prompts a really kind of beautiful passage about that's, you know, almost sort of like Proustian in the way that taste conjures up memory but more amusingly the burgundy keeps coming back throughout the novel so there's a point in sirens which is the like um bit of the novel that's most kind of concerned with celebrating music where it sort of um (laughs) makes makes itself uh felt with a sort of short like must be the burr Oh, uh, and then people are kind of singing and it gets kind of blurred with that. Um, but Bloom sort of scopes out whether anyone's behind him. So he's like, no one behind. She's passed. And then he, he knows that a tram's coming. So he's like, <laughs> OK, right. Good, good moment. Good moment. Good opera coming. Crandall, Crandall, Cran. I'm sure it's the Berg. Yes. One, two. Um, Cra written. I have <laughs> done. And it ends the episode. <laughs> so Burgundy then, I think, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Burgundy in all of its phases must be the sort of going in and coming the, out. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean the other drink to be I guess kind of scared of or to to go in fear of is um it later in the novel there's a a a bucket of porter that's intended for some plasterers um that winds up getting pissed into. But having been pissed into then winds up um in uh, be, being held by Edward the Seventh as part of his um, his Masonic regalia later in the episodes, we're told that Edward the Seventh, in his left left hand, he holds a plasterer's bucket on which is printed "Défense du René," <laughs> a roar of welcome greets. <laughs> um, <laughs> Even if we talk about just food and drink, we are already into filth, obscenity, and rudeness as much as possible. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, well, just because I mean, you know, it's the the sort of classic Joycean sense that, you know, the everything is in in process, everything is is in sort of transit and change. And that extends to the things that we kind of consume and the way that they move through us. And Joyce's willingness to chart those, you know, um, those odysseys. (laughs) Is, uh, is certainly something that that seems to have, have irked publishers, audiences, you know, official and unofficial mechanisms of censorship. Um, H.G. Wells talked about Joyce's cloacal obsession when he was reading, um, when he was reading Portrait of the Artist. And uh, that's, that's not unfair. <laughs> it's funny, because when I read it, I that didn't strike me. It's weird. So I'm going to just say what I thought was the, I mean, for me, my favourite, most rudest part is definitely... The final part, Penelope, um, which is Molly Bloom's great soliloquy uh, conducted from her bed. I, the reason I suppose I chose this is because I've been reading a lot of books that are banned. There's a lot of male masturbation going on in the text that I've been reading. And I was sort of beginning to get fed up. It was like, <laughs> is, 
there ever going to be a female masturbation text? And then someone pointed out, well, duh, Molly Bloom's like, of course, of course, maybe we just didn't need to do another one after that because it's so (laughs) damn good. So I'm going to read out just a tiny part because the whole thing is just epic. And (laughs) if you do want to hear it spoken by someone who's uh, considerably more talented, the RTE players have great dramatization and you can do it by chapter. So even if you only want to listen to the rudest chapters of Ulysses, that's a great way to go for it. Um, so yeah, here's my, my, my rudest bit. God, I'm so embarrassed to be reading this. Anyway, I've chosen a bit that isn't as, as terrible. What's the idea making us like that with a big hole in the middle of us? Like a stallion driving it up into you because that's all they want out of you with with that determined, vicious look in his eye. I had to half shut my eyes. Still, he hasn't such a tremendous amount of spunk in him. When I made it pull it out... (laughs) Stop! I have to read this out. (laughs) When I made him pull it out and do it on me, considering how big it is, so much the better in case any of it wasn't washed out properly. (laughs) I get points for reading that out. Yes, absolutely. Lloyd, what bit would you choose as your favourite rudest bit or part that you are willing to read out? <laughs> well, where to begin, really? Um, so I, I once had to sort of, for an article I was writing, tabulate all of the things in Ulysses that are potentially irksome to a censor. So I'll give you that list first, just as sort of, um, in no particular order, it contains abundant profanity, enthusiastic blasphemy, um, explicitly rendered scenes of defecation, micuration, menstruation, masturbation, copulation, pre and post-mortem ejaculation, flagellation, transvestism, and graphic renderings of virtually every stage of most major venereal diseases. In some ways, throw a dart, hit a passage of Ulysses that contains something that um, will make eyes water. Um, I think one of the most kind of succinct and funny itineraries the book gives of its own obscenity um, comes in episode 15, which is the Circe section. We'll be talking about Circe a lot. It's um, not least because it's the part of the novel that Joyce writes when it's like production has basically been stalled because of the um, one of the obscenity trials. But anyway, Bloom and Stephen uh, have found themselves in Night Town, which is Joyce's version of Monto, um, the sort of red light district. And um, Bella Cohen, the brothel keeper, um, who's recently transformed. Circe is an episode full of transformations where people's, you know, everything changes um, uh, and where sort of, you know, dreams become kind of concrete and so on. Um, So Bella Cohen has recently become Bello Cohen, her sort of male alter ego. um, And Bloom... Um, is now stockinged, stayed, corseted, wigged, and fully made up. Um, and he is told by Bello, Bello Cohen that he must reckon with the sins of his past, um, who, because it's seriously and because everything becomes sort of literalized, the sins of the past literally appear. Um, and in a medley of voices, they tell us, he went through a form of clandestine marriage with at least one woman in the shadow of the black church. Unspeakable messages he telephoned mentally to Miss Dunn at an address in Dodolier Street, while he presented himself indecently to the instrument in the call box. By word and deed, he frankly encouraged a nocturnal strumpet to deposit fecal and other matter in an unsanitary outhouse attached to empty premises. In five public conveniences, he wrote penciled messages offering his nuptial partner to all strong-membered males. And by the offensively smelling vitriol works, did he not pass night after night by loving courting couples to see if and what and how much he could 
could see. Did he not lie in bed, the gross bore, gloating over a nauseous fragment of well-used toilet paper presented to him by a nasty harlot stimulated by gingerbread and a postal order? Bellow in response to this, say, what was the most revolting piece of obscenity in all your career, a crime? Go the whole hog, puke it out, be candid for once. Which, after that, like, the idea that lists it in this novel, you can have a character say, be candid for once about your obscenity, (laughs) is just delicious. But, um, but yeah, I think my favourite bit of that is the idea of Bloom in a public phone box calling someone and then just kind of pointing him like pointing his <laughs> himself at the receiver <laughs> um, so and the reference to gingerbread really that's that's unforgettable yeah the, the mix of a postal order and ginger it's yeah I, I mean um so but but you know that's it's a chapter in which bloom is at multiple points sort of put put on trial in various ways for things he has done and said so it's 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 you know more transparently even than other parts of the novel it's where you can see joyce thematizing censorship and kind of you know dramatizing various processes by which people are held to account for the you know the things that excite them and um that piece there sounded quite like legalistic the language that he did i mean that sounds like a charge sheet doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely and um and bloom is you know th- there are a few novels as conscious of the many discourses by which particularly sex sexuality desire and their representation are are kind of negotiated and um regulated and so now that we've established it's properly rude, in fact, I'd say it would get full marks in censorship bingo. I'm pretty sure that there isn't a box there. Unless, yeah. <laughs> what about sex toys? There's bound to be a sex toy reference somewhere, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, um, I, I, I would struggle to put, well, I struggle to put my finger on it, but there's, I mean, bl- there's, uh, uh, Bloom talks about like, having given enemas and, you know, there's, any appendage can be sort of, invoked yeah so i think it would get 100 percent in censorship bingo which is definitely the first text that has even come close i mean it's the or text of of rudeness really (laughs) (laughs) so it is time to tell the censorship story of this ridiculously rude and transgressive piece every opportunity he got he tried to make it ruder i mean when he runs into problems with drafts of ulysses in 1919 in america doesn't he just actually make it dirtier after he after he annoys people he's like yes okay i'll rewrite it and it'll be even ruder thank you very much yeah so i mean the the question of obscenity is a an even more sort of foregrounded one in the composition of ulysses because the 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 writing process is sort of directly cut in two almost by um an obscenity prosecution so long story short joyce offers um this publication the little review is a little magazine run out of um new york by um uh, margaret anderson and jane heap um who are figures we can maybe talk about more and on um but who are these uh you know ardent advocates of kind of experimental modernist writing, queer women, um, and absolute kind of heroes in the background of this and who don't get treated very well by many of the sort of key players. But Joyce agrees to publish Ulysses serially with them. Pieces of it appear on a semi-regular basis from um, 1918 through to uh, 1920. Um, when there's this sort of final obscenity prosecution. They, they, there are a few sort of minor hurdles 
in the early stages of this. So um, a couple of issues of um, the little review are deemed unmailable in the US. So they can't be posted and are effectively censored in that way. But the real crisis point comes in um, 1920 when sections of the Nausicaa episode, the sort of 13th um, episode of the, the, the novel, are mailed out unsolicited to potential likely subscribers. There's a lovely um, mirroring between sort of what's happening in Ulysses, what's happening in the Odyssey, and what happens in reality here, where the story goes that uh, um, the daughter of a New York lawyer is the one who kind of opens the parcel containing the little review, reads the um, episode in which Leopold Bloom famously engages in a sort of act of mutual masturbation with Gertie McDowell across a beach, and is you know horrified by this, presents it to her father, who then takes it and presents it to the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, the sort of Comstock League, um, and they bring a case against the Little Review. Um, and uh, John Quinn, who's the sort of patron of um, the Little Review, um, but also uh, by this point pr- pretty sort of tired of um, Anderson and Heap, whom he regards with a, a, a good deal of sort of quite misogynistic distaste and kind of queerphobic distaste, to be honest. He uh, does a kind of imperfect job of defending it, although arguably it's a, it's a pretty hard sell to sort of justify what's happened in this instance. And so at that point, the prospect of bringing out Ulysses in the little review stops. But what Joyce does in relation to this is kind of characteristically cussed. So on the one hand, what he does is he basically strategically seems to insulate himself from knowing what's going on in New York. What he does is on the one hand, he's currently working on the Searcy chapter, which we've already discussed, right? You know, where Bloom um, is accused of all his many sins and um, Edward VII shows up with a bucket of pissy porter and, you know, all all of that. Um, (laughs) Joyce, you know, makes that the longest chapter in the book. (laughs) Um, so it just grows and grows and grows. But what he also does is he goes back and he revises and kind of tinkers with all of the previous episodes so that things that he can kind of filthily pay off in Circe are anticipated elsewhere in the novel. So <laughs> instead of, you know, f- faced with the kind of prospect of, of suppression and confronted with, you know, transparent accusations of, you know, corrupting and perverting the morals of the young, uh, <laughs> Joyce is like hold my beer, <laughs> um, which may or may not be filled with piss. <laughs> and let's, you know, uh, let, let's really do this. And and so, as I say, it's a point at which the novel becomes even more explicitly concerned with the nature of obscenity. Um, although it's also interesting that, you know, the Nausicaa episode is itself already a sort of meditation on the, the figure of the vulnerable young person and the way in which that that figure is a sort of textual or cultural product of themselves. But it's interesting, you know, that, that there's there's something very kind of narratively satisfying about the way in which the episode of the novel that's very explicitly about, like, the threat a text can pose to a young person becomes itself the centerpiece of a trial and um, and arrives, you know, un, unbidden on the beach like Odysseus, like Bloom, like, you know, um, it kind of kind of writes itself. It's almost too neat, really, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he was in Paris at this time, wasn't he? And that's eventually where he gets Ulysses published. But it wasn't even easy in Paris. And Paris is famous for the place you can get dirty books published. It's sort of like the, for English speakers, it's where you can take your transgressive text to and you can get it printed. But he didn't even have an easy time there, did he? No. So, I mean, there's there's a sort of um, string of errors and mishaps along the, the 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 route to even seeing the thing into print 
Paris at this point is simultaneously emerging as a kind of mecca for a certain form of transgressive English language experimental writing, but it also has a longer history of being um, a, a place where obscene English language texts and particularly like erotic texts can be published. And um, in some ways, the publishing infrastructure that Joyce engages with there is, a, is actually indebted to um, that that kind of infrastructure of, um, you know, explicitly sort of erotic publishing. But yeah, so, you know, you've got examples of the Circe episode, the, the, you know, the one we've referred to a few times now, was being typed up by a typist who was uh, married to um, an employee of the British embassy um, in Paris who kind of famously caught a glimpse of what um, his wife was typing um, and immediately threw it in the fire. <laughs> uh, and uh, all credits to, um, to to the woman she'd um, she'd managed to sort of, she'd taken the precaution of hiding the rest of the um, the, the draft material and was able to get it back to Joyce. Um, and, you know, the, the, that kind of loss was made up. But yeah, Joyce goes through a sort of series of um, of typists. I mean, one also just like terrible things that like you know some poor woman's father dies and like um, which Joyce points out is something that happens in the episode. So Joyce gets this kind of weird sense that like the text is beginning to bring things into being. When he's uh, when it comes time to type up Penelope, um, he is is helped out by um, Robert McCallman, who's a um, a queer um, American um, novelist who who does a lot to, to sort of help Joyce and he's McCallman is is um, as a, a colleague of mine Casey Lawrence rightly pointed out in a, a, a sort of thread I did on Twitter a while back about like the the sort of queer history of publishing Ulysses McCallman is one in a in a long succession of people who contribute and you know are are vital to the appearance of Ulysses um, who are and you know. Uh, members of the sort of LGBTQIA plus community in different ways. So um, Anderson and Heap are, you know, a couple in New York. Um, Joyce, uh, when it becomes clear that or no US or UK publisher is willing to take the risks of publishing Ulysses, um, he turns to Sylvia Beach, who's the owner of Shakespeare and Company, which is this English language bookshop in Paris. Beach is... Uh, a queer woman who um, is in a kind of on again, off again, but lifelong relationship with Adrienne Monnier, who's the first person to translate sections of Ulysses into French and sort of oversees the um, French language edition of Ulysses. Beach, um, once she sort of is slightly strong armed into uh, becoming the publisher for Ulysses, she conscripts Maurice Durantier, who is um, a Dijon based kind of master printer. He's one of the, you know, in a, in a period when, Virtually everyone has transitioned to more me mechanized forms of printing. He still kind of hand sets everything, hand presses it. So, like, there are many, many reasons why it's insane that Ulysses exists at all. But one of one of the things is that this like eight hundred page text that is, you know, written in a language that like at times bears only a passing relationship to standard English is being hand set by a French typing like typing team to the point where you know at one point because obviously the french language uses letters like g far less frequently they just run out of g's so they have to like start asking other printers across the country if anyone has any g's <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, to, to make ulysses physically happen is a kind of mammoth undertaking and it's an undertaking that is um you know uh that, that is un, uh, impossible to imagine without um, the kind of dedicated labor and commitment of all of these people who almost uniformly are kind of 
gender nonconforming or kind of sexually nonconforming in some way. And there's a, uh, it's something that um, Alison Bechdel really uh, kind of nicely highlights in um, in Fun Home, if you've ever read that, that um, she she sort of flags up or she asks, you know, why do all of these um, these kind of queer women and queer people go to bat for Joyce? Um, and, you know, and her, I suppose her, her sort of underlying argument is that, um, you know, if there's if there ever was a cohort of people who understand the importance of, you know, speaking frankly about desire and its, um, you know, kind of relationship to identity and so on. Um, you know, it, it is uh, it, it is queer folk. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But it's uh, yeah, so it's a long kind of arduous process, not helped by Joyce, who also is, um, you know, will like keep expanding and expanding and rewriting the novel, even when he's being sent like galley proofs, like even even when it should be in the final stages of production. He's just like, yeah, but, you know, could we just like add this? Could we make this bigger? Um, I mean, we, we were having a conversation just before the, the podcast about how, you know, um, a piece of writing is never finished. It's simply abandoned. And Ulysses is a kind of prime example of this, where it's really just Joyce's kind of dogged determination that the book should appear on his 40th birthday. That means that it's actually done. So um, Drantier and Beach um, sort of work overtime to uh, ensure that two copies of the novel, you know, kind of fully put together, reach Paris on the um, the Morning Express on the second of February, uh, nineteen twenty-two, in time for Joyce's. You know, so one one goes to Joyce, one goes for the, uh, the shop window of Shakespeare and Company. But it's if he hadn't been so determined to have it appear exactly then, probably still be writing the fucking thing. <laughs> So in 1922, he has finally got a physical copy of the book that he decided he had to have finished. But that's in Paris that he managed to create this. So how does it circulate then in the US and the UK? Because it's kind of difficult to translate a physical book from Paris that might be dodgy and possibly subject to censorship into an English speaking context then. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting process and it's one that some of the outcomes of which are not necessarily even kind of fixed at the time. So it, it's clear that, you know, on the basis of the little review censorship, it's very unlikely that the novel will go unchallenged in the United States. But it's 
<clears throat> it's not completely clear that it definitely will be censored. So copies do make it to, you know, proudly be displayed in bookshop windows in New York and things. Um, and the little review runs a full page ad for it. And there's this sort of brief anxious moment of like, what, you know, how, how will this go? And then the, you know, the, the, the burnings begin in New York society for the suppression vice and other people kind of, you know, make sure that it, <laughs> it goes the way you'd expect. In terms of getting the text out there, um, a whole sort of elaborate set of uh, what we might call kind of book legging mechanisms are, you know, so we're, we're in the, the period of prohibition. I mean, that's not my pun. That's, I can't take credit <laughs> for that. Um, but, but, you know, Beach winds up talking to Ernest Hemingway about um, whether he has any sort of connections. You know, he, he, he seems like the type of guy who would not least because he's actually sort of, um, you know, originally based in, in or has a connection to Chicago, um, which is a very good point if you want to smuggle things across the border from Canada. So Hemingway gets in touch with a mate of his, um, Barnett Braverman, who's a copywriter and kind of radical um, leftist figure based in Chicago. And he says, yeah, yeah, no, you know, if, if you get them imported to Canada um, where the novel hadn't been banned, then I can bring them across the border in bulk in the back of a truck. And actually, the biggest sort of barrier there was just Canadian import duties. So they managed to kind of basically they managed, I think, to argue on the basis of the fact that the book is virtually worthless in the US or that it's kind of because it is liable to suppression. They managed to like barter on the um, import duty to get it cheap. Um, so they bring it across and um, um, he manages to get it across the border in a truck. Um, and so that that does sort of seems to take care of most of the American orders of the first impression of Ulysses. So Ulysses. To deal with further um, copies from this point onward, um, John Rodker, uh, who is himself a sort of publisher based in Paris, he um, kind of steps in and in collaboration with um, Iris Barry, who's a sort of suffragette and leftist, um, he imports copies in bulk from Paris to London, unstitches them and then slips them into newspapers, which can then be shipped in bulk from the UK to the US. So there's this whole sort of like, I mean, or you've got like, you know, um, Braverman and people like have copies that they've like stuffed down their trousers. Like, you know, it's, it's it, it, it is almost beyond sort of parody. Where is where is the the Netflix series involving the the smuggling of Ulysses around the world? I mean, this sounds like a great story. <laughs> it's yeah, no, but it, well, I mean, it, what it does is sort of triangulate this whole complex multinational network of you know, yeah, different forms of sort of dissident figure. Like there there are a lot of people who, for a variety of different political reasons, are sort of happy to go to bat for this novel um, in all sorts of ways. You know, it, it, it's. Um, there's a kind of pacifist tradition, there's a sort of anarchist wing to this, there's a suffragist wing, you know, a lot of different people find in the experimental of Ulysses something emblematic that they're they're willing to take kind of great personal risk over. Um but yeah, as you say, it, it's it's kind of crying out to be um to be to be dramatized. Um and I mean also like it, you know, this doesn't always work. But, you know, 500 copies of the novel that have been, you know, meticulously printed wind up getting impounded at Folkestone and Kent and burnt en masse, um, you know, in, in as, as part of this um, sort of transmission mechanism. So that, you know, there's no guarantee if you send off for a copy of Ulysses and pay the very heavy cost that, that um, it was asking um, in these days, there's no guarantee that it'll sort of necessarily reach you. But equally... You know, it's entirely possible that even in somewhere where the text is explicitly sort of legally obscene, it may well just get to you. Like the, the, one of the things that's, you know, uh, as as I'm sure you've sort of addressed in, in other episodes is like 
you know, censorship, it's, we tend to think of censorship as being this very like efficient and well-organized establishment mechanism. And it's such a haphazard mess of a thing. <laughs> like it's so unevenly, you know, applied and it involves so many different agencies sort of that, you know, with the right hand, not really knowing what the left is doing, that there can be times where, you know, hundreds of copies can reach their intended recipients. And there can be times when everything goes up in smoke and it's, um, but yeah, turning to the UK, because the UK and the US are are working off the same legal tradition with this Hinkland test of obscenity. And legally, like it's supposed to be the same where the book is tried for obscenity. But the two states do behave differently in the case of Ulysses, because it's it, it suffers legal consequences in the states, but not in the UK, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, it, it's one of those moments where we encounter the different things that censorship can mean. So Ulysses is never censored in the United Kingdom in the sense that there is no legal precedent or, you know, that you can't find a point where a trial occurs in which Ulysses is deemed legally obscene. But to all intents and purposes, it is aggressively censored in the UK. It's just done very quietly. So, you know, where the where the US has these two sort of landmark trials, you know, the first in 1921, where the little review is suppressed, the second in 1933, where the novel is famously kind of legalized and legitimized. Um, the UK doesn't have that, but it does have all of these um, more or less explicit efforts to regulate the circulation of the novel. Between 1922 and 1936, which is when the first sort of mass market British edition of Ulysses appears, it's uh, prohibited um, in the post. So it can't, uh, the postal circulation of Ulysses is prohibited by the Home Office in December 1922. Although, again, weirdly, that ban seems to go unenforced until 1933, when a warrant is issued to detain open packages containing Ulysses. But uh, in the same month, in December 1922, um, a copy of Ulysses is impounded at Croydon Aerodrome, um, the sort of London's major airport at the time. And that seems to be the point at which the British legal establishment are like, right, what are we going to do about Ulysses? Um, because, you know, basically a, a customs officer has said, right, I need a decision on what I do. Do I return this to its recipient or do I destroy it? And the seizure was approved by the assistant undersecretary of, of state who consults with the um, director of public prosecutions, who winds up having a look at the novel, only seems to read the like last 40 pages. He basically reads Penelope and is like, no, <laughs> um, these appear to he, he describes it as something like the kind of deranged ramblings of a an, what appears to be an Irish chambermaid. Um, so, he, you know, has no sense of who, who Molly Bloom is, but it's clear that she's a woman and she's purr. So, you know, that that can get right in the bin. Uh, uh, so from then on, um, its seizure under customs legislation becomes fairly common, um, culminating, as I say, in this um, sort of burning of 500 copies um, at Folkestone. Um, there's a more diffuse sort of ad hoc program of surveillance that goes on as well. Um, so Harriet Shaw Weaver, um, who was one of Joyce's patrons and ran the Egoist Press, which issued a sort of notionally UK-based edition of the novel we'll talk uh, we'll talk about the vagaries of publishing that but um she reports having a detective outside her house kind of keeping watch on her the uh the chief constables of um, britain's major cities were all alerted to the novel's um suppression and basically told that um you know they informed any booksellers operating in the in their area that they should inform them of any orders they receive 
public libraries serve as a sort of mechanism of censorship. Um, so there's a, <laughs> a sort of fantastic story about um, the town clerk of Stepney writes to the um, Home Office saying that someone in Stepney has requested that their local library get a copy. Um, and the Home Office are like, who is it? And he says, I would love to tell you, but the librarian, whom he describes as a red-hot socialist and an Oxford man, um, refuses to give the name because he's like, I've read Ulysses, and I don't think that it is an obscene book, so get stuffed. Um, <laughs> Radical librarian. Right? I Yeah, like, I'm, I'm very here for it. But uh, eventually they do figure out who the person is, and a check is placed on his mail, so anything that he... That is so extreme. So they open his post. Yeah, yeah, it gets better. Um, in 1926, um, a young F.R. Leavis, right, you know, f- famous literary critic, um, author of The Great Tradition, and, you know, um, often seen as a very kind of conservative figure within English literature in some senses. Um, he's placed under surveillance by the director of public prosecutions after trying to secure a copy of the novel for consultation by undergrads who are taking a lecture series he's given on modern problems and criticism. He, <laughs> uh, there's a fabulous letter where the, uh, the, the, the DPP writes to um, the chief constable of Cambridge saying, you know, can inquiries be made into what Dr. F.R. Levis of Emmanuel College is? <laughs> what is he? What do, what sort of question is what that? What is he? Um, what, what tick box on our form of deviance should we, yeah. we allocate him? I mean, there's a few things that sort of emerge out of this. One seems to be a concern that it will gain academic legitimacy, but it's also there's a, there's an anxiety about kind of, you know, young male and female, as is emphasized in a few letters, undergraduates getting a, a whiff of the novel to the point where Bodkin starts writing to the vice chancellor of Cambridge saying, like, you need to sack this guy in, in not in so many words. But he says something along the lines of, you know, it does not seem to me that it would be um to the benefit of uh, an august institution like Cambridge for the public to be made aware of the fact that you are harboring this uh, this sort of literature. That's a threat. Uh, yeah, threat, veiled threat of a smear campaign. To the credit of the VC, I can't remember uh, the name of the, the fellow, but he basically is sufficiently evasive to just let the matter kind of lie. But um, there's a, an article F.R. Levis wrote for the TLS um, some decades later where he basically says like my, his career was kind of pretty much stalled for a decade or two by this the 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 kind of air of impropriety this um this sort of cast around him yeah so like i say there's never a sort of definitive moment in which the axe comes down it's more just that if you wanted ulysses in the uk for reasons you'd never be fully aware of it would be very difficult to come by it which serves the interests of the home off you know it, it it um it means that it never becomes the kind of co-celebra that it does in, in the United States, which I think is probably the kind of implicit logic of this. So they're trying to avoid a scandal and they're trying to avoid a public trial of the book, but they're using all the machinery of the state to ensure that it is censored as effectively, even if it never went to court. Um, and and in some ways trying to kind of obviate even giving it the publicity that a full, you know, a full-throated ban would... Um, would entail. Um, and, you know, and there's a variety of reasons for that. I think that like it's actually in some ways it's an area where Joyce's Irishness seems to sort of quietly become quite important. Right. There's a, you know, in, in the sort of wake of, um, you know, the the rising in, in 1916 and so on, there's there's a sense of a kind of dissident quality to Joyce's writing that um, that start, bubbles up a few times. There's a uh, there's a review of the novel. Um, by Shane Leslie, who's a, a sort of interesting Anglo-Catholic figure. And he talks about it as basically being the equivalent of a sort of Clarkenwell explosion. So he he imagines it as a sort of Fenian dynamite attack on um, 
on the, the the walls of English propriety. Although what happens is he says that, you know, since it was printed abroad, um, it cannot fall by law to the great national collection. So there's no way that this is going to wind up in the British Library. And Joyce, Joyce immediately <laughs> jumps on this and has um, Sylvia Beach write to Shane Leslie to say, actually, I'll have you know that a copy has been ordered by the British Library and that an English edition is about to be published that will also fall by law to the great national collection. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of like, well, actually, in how Joyce conducts the um, the sort of behind the scenes. Um, so it it did explode the walls. Then it got into the British Library. So what happens is, as a condition of copyright in the UK, um, you have to send copies of your newly published work to all of the major copyright libraries. So the British Library, um, the Bodleian and Oxford, Cambridge University Library, the Faculty of Advocates in Edinburgh, the National Library of Wales, and TCD. Now Joyce in typical Joycean fashion, exploits this, but also kind of clumsily, um, to essentially smuggle the novel into these cultural sort of powerhouses. Um, so he he asks that the copies being sent come with a kind of note saying, you know, presented by the publisher too. So he he wants it to look like they requested it or like <laughs> that, that it's his beneficence. Although actually the, the, the copies have already been sent out. So none of this kind of happens. Um, but what it means is that sort of by a mechanism of British law, Ulysses winds up in the, all of these culturally sanctioned spaces. The British Library, to, to their credit, had already ordered a copy. There's a letter he writes to a, um, a colleague where he says, you know, the British Library have ordered a copy. So, you know, ready yourself because the last day must be near. So he he imagines this as, you know, kind of apocalyptic event. But he's he's also very concerned with getting Ulysses into these consecrated, um, you know, institutions mm -hmm. of, um, of of cultural capital in Britain. So there is a sense in which, you know, as Shane Leslie sort of jokingly says, you know, it, it is a kind of Clerkenwell explosion that ruptures the wall, but is also kind of willingly accepted. Like one of, you know, from a rare books and manuscripts studies standpoint, one of the main reasons that so many of the major libraries in the, in the UK and Ireland have copies of Ulysses is because they kind of fell to them by law. And they were then put, they were all put in restricted collections. So um, the Bodleian has its sort of Phi collection, Cambridge has its Arcana, the British Library has its private case. Um, also, just uh, as, on a side note about Ireland, um, what's really funny is TCD just stick it on an open shelf. <laughs> they don't. Yeah, yeah. So like there's a copy of Ulysses just ready for any, any undergrad who wants it. Um, but having had a look at their copy of it, which is now in a rare books reading room, unfortunately, you can't go nick it. The pages remain uncut. So no one ever read it. <laughs> no one even took it off the shelf. Yep, sit there on a shelf waiting to be read. No one, no one ever touched it. <laughs> um, that is that is so disappointing. I mean, that no one was nosy enough. Nobody, right? I mean, it 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 speaks to a wider ambivalence in Ireland about Joyce's work that that is even reflected in the fact that the novel is never formally banned in Ireland. Um, but again, you know, there seems to be a sort of similar question to be raised about censorship with a capital C and censorship with a sort of smaller C. Because it, it's it's one of those things that everybody presumes it was banned in Ireland, just I think as you would presume it was banned in the UK, but, you know, formally it's not. So I presume in Ireland it's subject to the same sorts of mechanisms of, you know, customs and all of these below-the-radar censorship movements but why do you think that they never put it on the blacklist because god knows they put nearly 
everything on the blacklist. And it didn't matter if it was 20 or 100 years old, it would go on the blacklist. It's not about a new book, you know, they had no qualms about that. So do you think that they were just kind of embarrassed to put something important like that on the blacklist? Or do you have any theories? There's a sense that, as in Britain, it's under, it seems almost to be understood as always already so obscene that it would be redundant to um, to ban it. Though, as you say, that's never stopped them before necessarily. Um, so, you know, for example, when the when the censorship bill is being debated, 1928 29, the Minister for Justice, uh, James Fitzgerald Kenny, uses Ulysses as an example um, of a text that is so obviously beyond the pale that the board don't need to read every line. There's a kind of amendment that, um, you know, some well meaning TCD prof is trying to kind of get added to, that says, you know, can we at least stipulate in the regulations that they have to read the entire book before they come to a determination? And Fitzgerald Kenny is like, there are books which are so blatantly indecent and known to be indecent that it would be unnecessary for the members of the board to read every line of them. Should the members of the board, for instance, be compelled to read through the every line of Ulysses, a book that has been universally condemned, you know, with the implication, no, <laughs> which which, le- <laughs> which leads back in, um, in that censorship essay we discussed, um, it, is, it is back to, to um, he jumps on this and is like, you know, talks about the board having sort of bigger things, bigger hairs to split than the pubic and, um, you know, it doesn't detain them long. He says that the, uh, the, 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 you know, the man of common sense is, is free to withdraw his purities from the corrupting text before they are entirely spent. So he sort of imagines the censor engaging in this like prophylactic withdrawal method reading <laughs> practice. Um, I don't know what that says for my project about reading all of the books now. I'm <laughs> Thank you, Beckett, for putting that image in my head. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, there's, um, I think there is, as you say, there's a sense of not wanting to confer undue publicity on a book that is, you know, held by the emergent free state, uh, you know, to be the work of one of their more conspicuous enfants terribles. So um, you can see this sort of reflected in in some of the limited cultural criticism um, Ulysses receives in uh, in Ireland. Um, Daniel Corkery, who you may have run across, you know, um, he's a big sort of Irish Ireland figure, um, De Valera supporter, and um, he he winds up a professor of English at uh, at UCC. Um, But in his um, study, Sing and Anglo-Irish Literature, which is one, it's a widely read um, sort of work of literary criticism, of, you know, on a, on a sort of Irish topic by an Irish author. And um, he characterizes Joyce as one of Ireland's literary wild geese, as he puts it, um, and says that his treatment of Irish life has been sort of contaminated by what he calls alien considerations. <laughs> yeah, it's that going abroad thing, you know. Yeah, it's he's dirty. Irish, but he's not like Irish. To the point where, you know, it, it, it sort of, it almost like renders Joyce even though, you know, Joyce is ultimately a kind of lower middle class or, well, Catholic author, that it, it's still, you know, he, he's basically Anglo-Irish in terms of his um, <laughs> his, his status as a wrong. And that kind of makes the label Anglo-Irish a bit silly if we're going to make Joyce Anglo-Irish. I'm sorry. It's why, well, you know, you can see the, the sort of gatekeeping function that it, it, it comes to serve. Um, I think the other thing is that obviously, you know, I, I know the board don't always sort of abide by this. But technically, if we've got this requirement that, you know, sufficient copies of the book have to be sent in by the public for everyone to read it. Ulysses, the cheapest copy of Ulysses you could buy throughout the 1920s and 30s um, or an, until it appears in the sort of mass market edition um, is uh, costs 125 francs, which was two pounds, 10 shillings, which 
in today's money is about 145 quid or 170 euro. So if you wanted to give five members of the board a copy of it, if you really wanted to come for Joyce, you had to cough up like nearly 800 euro <laughs> to kind of to take a pop. Um, <laughs> so, you know, in, in, in some senses, it's a very rare instance of the censorship act actually sort of working as intended, like that, uh, you know, a, a work that is so clearly beyond the, the means of the average reader sort of escapes consideration. Although, as I say, you know, when when did that necessarily stop the board? Joyce does wind up on the, uh, you know, just in case you're worrying that Joyce doesn't ever get censored in Ireland, he does eventually wind up on the um, Register of Obscene Publications um, whenever uh, in 1944 um, parts of the manuscript from what eventually becomes a portrait of the artist as a young man, a, a sort of proto-novel called Stephen Hero, um, are, are issued uh, in, a, in a volume published by Jonathan Cape, and that gets banned. So Joyce does belatedly have his kind of moment in the censorious sun. The censorship list wouldn't be complete if you didn't have at least one Joyce text on it. I mean, everyone else is on it. It would be a shame. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh... <laughs> And yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't be complete with, uh, without, um, without Sunny Jim. Also, just, just before we wrap up, I realized I didn't actually mention my absolute favorite piece of obscenity in Ulysses. Oh, go on, go on. Finish it off with uh, some real filth. Well, well, but this is what I was going to say is what I love about this is this is one of those pieces of filth that's so finely wrought that you don't actually notice necessarily that it's filth. So there's, there's a point in, once again, our, our favorite Circe where Bloom is being accused of, um, you know, various unsavory things by um, a nymph who has stepped out of a painting, a reproduction of a painting that um, they, the Blooms keep over their bed. And the nymph is basically like, the things I've had to see you do, Leopold. <laughs> <laughs> like, but but one, of, one of the things that he sort of confesses to is he says... I have paid homage on that living altar where the back changes name. Now, the living altar where the back changes name is your arse, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. And the, the, the homage we might imagine him having paid is, um, I think, kind of speaks for itself. But I just, yeah, I in terms of how Joyce can take, you know, the the, the very gritty and you know embodied and kind of elevate simultaneously elevate and debase it and make you aware that he is doing both at the same time you know it, it's it in terms of what ulysses does with obscenity this i i just love that moment for kind of crystallizing it and also just offering you a kind of beautiful way to if you ever need to you know to refer to the, the living altar where the back changes name you, you've now got that in your arsenal <laughs> I love the image of the nymph coming down and being like, you won't believe the things I've had to see. Yeah. <laughs> you dirty. Yeah, no, it's a um... dirty fecker. Yeah. <laughs> um... oh, oh, Lloyd, that was great. I had such a good time talking about Ulysses. I haven't enjoyed thinking about Ulysses so much for a very long time. To to address you, dear listener, as well, like, you know, I think Ulysses is one of those texts that so often... Um, placed on a pedestal and, you know, made this insurmountable Everest of literature that you need to, you know, have done four degrees to even 
begin to get purchase on and like yeah you can read it that way and it can be that and and you know that was a big part of what got it unbanned was framing it as this august work of um you know oh it's actually a kind of retelling of homer's odyssey didn't you know but it's also hilarious and filthy and human and you know this fantastic compendium of just things that like really clearly tickled james joy (laughs) And, and, you know, I I, I think that there is there is no right way to to read Ulysses and there's no wrong way to read Ulysses. And if this episode has done nothing, I hope it's it's sort of it's made Ulysses seem a more silly and approachable and funny and fart filled um, kind of text than, (laughs) than it may hitherto have appeared. And I think with podcasts now, it really frees up that you can just listen to episodes out of it. You don't, you don't have to pick up a physical book if you can't work out where to find the, you know, the episodes you're looking for. Just listen to Nausicaa on its own. As we've established, it may not necessarily be the thing that you want to have playing if you're, you know, on a, if you're taking like granny to church or something. (laughs) 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 It's uh, as, as something to, uh, you know, experience yourself. Yeah, headphones, definitely headphones. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Lloyd. That was wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) And that's it for season four. It feels right to end with the most literary and filthiest book of the 20th century. My conversation with Dr. Lloyd May of Houston was way longer than what you just heard. If you want to hear even more Joy's chat, you can find a full, unexpurgated version on Patreon. It's kind of odd that the only book scoring 25 out of 25 in censorship bingo was never even banned in Ireland. But like I've said before, the censors were weird as fuck. Luckily for this podcast, their weirdness was never ending. I already have season 5 mapped out. There will be horny film stars, nightclub debauchery and sex education for teenagers. Episode 1 will open with Something Nasty in the Woodshed, courtesy of a favourite book of mine. i leave you guess which book it might be. You've a few weeks to work it out. Till season 5, keep your hands squeaky clean and your minds revoltingly dirty. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.